So whenever you think about the different levels of man, I mean, you've got the physical and you've got the emotional. You also have the neurological, which has to do with Viktor Frankl's concept of like a higher meaning value system uh, that's not exactly spiritual, but would fit most likely in that area. But the thing that Frankl missed was that most of that you can find in the corner back by the woodpile. It's that easy. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see what rises to the top. And so without further delay, let's get to it. The first quote is, The best ground for a man to be on is his own ground, his garden, his own house, away from the morbid souls who hunt on the docks the rotten meat of nightmares. The world's a dangerous place. I mean, best as far as safest, as far as more comfortable. I disagree with this one for sure. I love to explore. I love to meet opposing viewpoints and widen my perspective that way. Um, I love my garden, but unless I incorporate some of what I get from around me, even the cautionary tales... It's not going to be what it could be. It, you know, very limited. If I'm just working with what I've always known, I'd rather be challenged. Have you ever been that person that wanted to hold himself up, you know, create a fortress that was safe, a cocoon maybe? I mean, I've retreated at times after particularly difficult spells. Thankfully, had visitors during those times. I mean, there's parts of myself that I keep guarded until I have the worked out to a point where I'm confident enough to expose, you know, if it's like still a gushing wound, I'm probably not going to go exposing it to the world. But, you know, once I've recouped a bit, I'd get right back out there. I mean, the only thing that kept me alive when I was a teenager was thinking that I didn't know what would happen tomorrow. It was too interesting to let go. Again, the best ground for a man to be on is his own ground, his garden, his own house, away from the morbid souls who hunt on the docks the rotten meat of nightmares. The rotten meat of nightmares? (laughs) What the hell is that? (laughs) I can easily interpret that as best to keep to yourself. I could easily go recluse. Why? Because of these morbid souls that are throwing nightmares at me from the dock, you know, <laughs> as, as, I'm, as I'm walking by. And I think that's, you know, just for me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, so. Are you naturally introvert or because of bad experiences with these well, nightmares? Well, people, people shun me. <laughs> so, so maybe it's less introversion than it's, I, I've been. Uh, ostracized? Yeah. Yeah, okay. by society at large. So, as a kid, you were introvert. Sure, but you you get on stage in front of lots of people. That's hardly introverted. Yeah, but you know, even within that, uh, um, if I'm on stage, I'm generally the the side guy, looking for, a, hey, I'm here, but I'm not quite the focus of of attention. 
you know, and even at that, I think I remember my first couple of bands just being actually physically looking for somebody out front who I could hide behind, physically hide behind, you know. So did you try to get in bands that had heavy set lead singers? I found them, yeah, and thank God for that because yeah. uh, they they provide me with a with a, a launching pad from from behind. How long we've worked together? Like a year or so. Maybe finally recently you've been more chatty. I'm warming up to you. get your head off my shoulder, man. Yeah. Have you had some experiences where you you know as an introvert you're perfectly happy, then you came out of your shell because people tell you that's what you should do, mm-hmm. and it completely blew up in your face and like, well, this is stupid. I'm going back to my going back to my shell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that happens with women from time to time, you know. You go, should I just admire this woman from afar? Uh Or should I actually try to live the dream, get in there, Uh muck it up, and and when it becomes a nightmare, shake your head and go, (laughs) you know, this was so much better as a a fantasy. Are you a serial dater? I'm a serial monogamist. Okay, but you're still hoping for a non-nightmare relationship. No, I'm I'm content with the nightmares. Uh, <laughs> That's where you thrive. Well, yeah, they, they say familiarity is, is um, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. I wouldn't know how to react, you know, in a, in a proper, you know. I hate to be so personal, but like, have you met a gal that like it wasn't a nightmare situation? Did it? Oh yeah, I mean, I, but the funny thing is, the women that I've had relationships with longer lasting have not necessarily been the ones where you see somebody and you go, oh my God, this is it. And you have that physical thing. There's been several gals like that where I've just gone like, oh man, this this needs to happen. And it never fails to me, maybe this is just me, in those kind of situations. And maybe it's because you build it up too much. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but I, I always find that it never works out. The, the reality of who they are or how you work or don't work together. A beautiful and wonderful mystery. <laughs> I'll spend my lifetime divining the intricacies of Again, the best ground for a man to be on is his own ground, his garden, his own house, away from the morbid souls who hunt on the docks, the rotten meat of nightmares. I think it's good to have your own ground and stand on it. And I know where your sustenance comes from and not like chase every thought that comes out because you don't know where you stand. And it's also good to have your own property. But going um, going from really, really wherever that author is coming from, it's, it's more than just like property. You know, if someone's on the dock hunting like fleshly uh, nightmares or... I think we're in a place right now, politically, and beyond like politics, just like socially, like where we are. If you are afraid to die, which like there is some, I'm I'm afraid about how I'm going to die, you know, then you can be incredibly concerned when something happens in California or Boston or Paris, and then you can say, well, we don't need to let these particular people into the country. Mm. And I understand, like, you need more security and, like, increase the vetting process. Like, mm. something is wrong. But the any sort of blanket statement, in my mind, shows I want to fix something quick or I'm scared. I think people do that when they don't have firm grounds to stand on. They don't feel secure. Yeah, and so it's about protecting my security, which, again, is natural. But I had a friend 
Naim Singh, who said, it's not who you are, it's when you are. You can be nice and genial and respectful when you're by yourself at home and everything's right and your bank account is such mm -hmm. and everything is like the optimal conditions and you can be your best and so you can look great. But when you're in a position where that's threatened, then you can see how monstrous a person can become. Right. Reminds me a little bit of some people think being a monk would be difficult, but some argue actually that it's, it's easy, it's too easy mm -hmm. because you're not tempted as much. You're, you're in this very sterile, dealing with mostly pretty easygoing, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. devout people where yeah. you're not in the middle of the world where you're tested constantly. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because there are those who practice the ascetic life, but they still like work. I think that's supposed to be the best combination. Yeah. They retire to their hermitage, but, you know, they're working with the poor during the day. Or, yeah. yeah. I think there's a story about Thomas Merton that, you know, when he went to Abbey Gethsemane in mm -hmm. Kentucky there, he was allowed to have a hermitage, like a little shack or something in, mm -hmm. in the wilderness. And the abbot could tell that Merton was becoming antisocial, I guess, or, uh -huh. you know, so into prayer and all that that he was kind of losing touch with humanity. Mm -hmm. So he would deliberately send him on these errands to Louisville, Kentucky, oh, wow. to pick up supplies or whatever. Oh, wow. And Merton would just be so irritated because it was interrupting his spiritual life. Yeah. And I think... He was on a bus and he saw just a, a kind of a guy didn't have it together scratching his butt uh -huh. or something, and he just so despised him. And, and I think that's the moment he realized he had forgotten the point of yeah. Christ. Yeah, I like that. Again, the best ground for a man to be on is his own ground his garden, his own house, away from the morbid souls who hunt on the docks the rotten meat of nightmares. I'm a, a member of the uh, Methodist Church just up the road here, a big church. And when I go to church, people that sit around me are the same people as, as last week and the same people as next week. And we share beliefs, mostly, probably. And the people I sit in Sunday school class we share beliefs. It's very comfortable. We can have discussions, and we don't always agree on everything, but our core beliefs are the same. That would be standing on my ground. Does that change the world at all? No. Hiding your light under a bushel in some ways. Exactly. You know, uh, Christ said, now go and make disciples of the whole world. Well, if you go into a group of Christians to make disciples, <laughs> you don't have any work to do. If you have a great idea to make things better in whatever area it's in, and you keep it to yourself, it's a worthless idea. Now, it's safe because if you go out and spout that great idea, somebody may say, no, you're wrong. Well, let me ask you this, since you brought this up. Our culture is going through changes. I mean, I guess it's always changing, but there seems to be a hostility, a growing hostility towards particularly Christianity. And sometimes... I get the feeling, well, they just don't want, want me here, so I'm not going to participate. Sometimes you get so frustrated. But then, like you said before, that doesn't do any good. It's not even good for me, really. Do you ever feel that way? Like, just kind of like, forget it. You guys can sort it out yourselves. or Well, you know, again, we go back to the world of education. In education, in public education, it is highly frowned upon to express 
your religious beliefs. I was uh, the sponsor of our Fellowship of Christian Athletes for several years at North. Do they still exist? They still exist. Okay, we still have it at FCA. There's no problem. Chapter. What being at the school? Uh, Hopkins County is a unique county. Christianity is much more allowed here. Uh-huh. Religious beliefs is much more allowed here. Not just Christianity. Right. Religious belief is much more allowed here in the public school system than in most counties. Mm-hmm. Our youth ministers from the community can come in on Wednesday at lunchtime and walk around the cafeteria and chat with people who choose to chat with them. They can't walk up to somebody who doesn't want to talk with them and start trying to sell them Christianity. They can counsel kids. They can just chat about how are you doing. They can encourage kids. So it's not necessarily It's not necessarily purely religious, but certainly if they go over and they talk to somebody who's from their youth group, religion is going to come up and somebody else at the table is going to hear it. So in education, it's frowned on to talk about religion. I have probably violated that dictate over the years in that if you as a student said, what do you think? I will say, well, according to my beliefs, and I think that's a legitimate thing to say, but there are people who will say, you can't say that in school. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, you mean I'm not allowed to have beliefs? Mm -hmm. I can't say, you have to believe what I believe. People have, have so often and, and constantly misinterpret Supreme Court rulings on separation of church and state. The Supreme Court did not say anywhere, you can't pray in school. The Supreme Court said that you cannot require children to pray in school, nor can you have a prayer throughout your district that is the same prayer in every classroom at the same moment on Monday. Because that would violate the... Congress can't establish a particular religion. The initial lawsuit came out of New York State. There was a public school district that every teacher had this week's list of morning prayers. So it was almost like a liturgy of sorts. Sure. And so you started your day out, you took attendance, and then you said, okay, now let us all pray. And what happened is one kid said, I'm not going to pray. And the teachers punished that child. That's not right. That's not right. And in the final ruling, they said, well, we just can't do that. They didn't say you can't pray in school. They said you can't do that particular type of practice. These days, it's reinterpreted as prayer is not allowed in school. Rulings are based on the Constitution. The Supreme Court level rulings are based on the Constitution and on the presence of existing rulings. So you could easily argue that... By now, there have been hundreds of local courts that have ruled that prayer in school is not allowed, basing it on a misinterpretation of the Supreme Court ruling. The misinterpretation has then set the precedent. I don't know how the legal system works sometimes. Can a judge come down the pike and say, well, the precedent was wrong? Yes, Okay. he could. And then you appeal to the next level judge until you find one who agrees with you. Okay. And it gets all the way to the Supreme Court. The other ruling about prayer in school, the other Supreme Court case about prayer in school that was significant was one that was prayer at a football game. At the start of the football game, let us pray, and this one kid didn't bow his head. The next Monday in class, the teacher chastised the child for not praying at the football game. 
being disrespectful. It's his freedom of expression. If you pull him aside and say, I think that was disrespectful, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. If you yell at him in front of his classmates, that's a totally different one. Mm -hmm. Thus, they said, no, you can't punish a child for not participating in a pregame prayer. But the interpretation is, you can't have a pregame prayer. By the way, if you go out to a football game at Madisonville North Hopkins High School, there will be a pregame prayer. And every year, our administration, either the principal or the superintendent's office, gets three or four or five calls from somebody who says, you can't pray before football games. And they say, well, thank you for your opinion. We'll, we'll make a note of that. <laughs> the thing is, it's usually led by the youth minister up in the Methodist Church. Sometimes it's led by students. Sometimes it's led by other people. It's not required. I think for the most part, they avoid saying uh, Christ mm-hmm. in the prayer. They pray to God because your God and my God may not be the same thing. But if we start talking about Christ, Christ is Christ. Either he is or he isn't. Anybody who's religious, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Hindu, whether they're whatever, they have a God. If you say, I'm praying to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, you've offended some very religious people. I lost track of where we were. Well, I think that going back to the idea of you can't do things because they'll offend people, you have to be honest with your opinion. I don't mind that President Trump has strong opinions. He's wrong about a lot of them. I'm wrong about a lot of my opinions, probably. (laughs) But he certainly has the right to have them. And apparently, there's a lot of people that agree with him. Now, has that caused the divide, or has it merely made the divide more obvious? Do we have a divide? Yes. Is Christianity, for some reason, the only religion you seem to be able to pick on? You know, comedians have made that point. You can make jokes about Christians. Don't make jokes about Muslims. Don't make jokes about Hindu. Don't make jokes about Jews. But you can make jokes about Christians all you want. I think that the more we're sold on ideas that don't follow our religion, the easier it is to not follow. Thomas Jefferson did not believe that Christ performed miracles. If you've read about the Jeffersonian Bible, he basically took out all of the miracles that Christ claimed to have been done by Christ. And he said, okay, take all of that out and look at what you have here. If you lead your life based on this philosophy, don't call it a religion anymore. If you lead your life based on this philosophy, we're going to have a great world. So does it matter whether Christ perform miracles. It does to me. It didn't to Thomas Jefferson. He still said, do what Christ said, and the world will be a better place. And the next quote, what is he thinking, that man who trembles between a rifle and a wall, buried in his time, and nonetheless about to be taken from it, by a blow that the mother who bore him could never have dreamed of. That came up for me when I watched Schindler's List. Mm. Um, right, what an incredibly powerful movie and so difficult. Loved it. Very, never watch it again, but I loved right, it. Right, yeah. I would. I could never watch it again. Yeah. Um, and I had family that that died during that time there, and um, so it's very personal for me as well as global and. 
And I thought, you know, if I was in another country and there were Jews, and I, and I was Jewish, and there were Jews that needed protection, would I protect them? Mm -hmm. I certainly hope I would if I wasn't Jewish and I could be killed for protecting Jews. Any yeah. person. Yeah, left-handed people. Right, and le right. I'm right-handed, and if left-handed people were being killed, mm -hmm. you know, will, would I hide them in my basement? Um, boy, I hope I would. And it's almost terrifying to think, what if I didn't? You it's know? worse, almost. I think. What if I didn't? Yeah. I so sometimes I wonder about the psychology of Europe and other countries. You know, everywhere you go, there's been genocide of some sort yeah. or something like that, everywhere. and people have gone along with it or not. You hear about the survivors having guilt, but you think about the people that went along with it or didn't, didn't even try. Do they suffer terribly? Yeah, actually, yeah. Well, I know that in Germany, there are many, many, um, you know, there are generations of people who are struggling with guilt and shame and, um, and the trauma of it and from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Again, what is he thinking, that man who trembles between a rifle and a wall, buried in his time and nonetheless about to be taken from it by a blow that the mother who bore him could never have dreamed of? Can I? How colorful can my language be? Go ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll make a little Pac-Man thing over it. Every f***er that's born uh, can be a rapist or a rape victim, uh, you know, a murderer or a murder victim. Uh, it can be, um, you know, a Gandhi or a Hitler, uh, you have no idea. It's probably more than likely going to be uh, somewhere in between, you know, <laughs> which is where most of us reside. You hope for the best. But it gets into the whole thing with, with parenthood, and, and you, you have a lot of concerns, but you can't allow yourself to be concerned with so much stuff because it's overwhelming, mm -hmm. you know. And there's so much that you don't have control over. You can be the best parent in the world and provide this wonderful, loving, protective home and, and everything that the child needs and everything. And the child ends up being a complete dick, you know. <laughs> and, and it's not your fault, right. necessarily. People make choices, and, and so, so you never know. Uh, but certainly with regards to the quote, you know, most mothers, uh, I would assume, they hope for the best and just they even I've seen it I've absolutely seen it where this person's guilty as hell of something uh, whatever horrible thing it is now you're talking about the um, or some revolutionary thing right Castro was it what yeah. Did you say? yeah okay it's a political issue right. then murder isn't necessary mm -hmm. let's just say but even I've seen situations where, you know, even the mother of someone who is, like, absolutely convicted mm -hmm. uh, as a murderer, maybe it's brutal, multiple murders, and they've admitted guilt and all this stuff, and still the mother holds on to, you know, well, she just can't see him as anything other than what she held in her arms. Right. Uh, and it's so understandable to me. If we're talking about a political thing, people have pulled the trigger assholes. Right. Okay. Again, what is he thinking, that man who trembles between a rifle and a wall, buried in his time and nonetheless about to be taken from it by a blow that the mother who bore him could never have dreamed of? He's probably thinking how fragile and fleeting life can be. 
I, I think that it sounds like a, a scenario of uh, war. He's probably thinking, I was born and now this blow could end that. I had a, a near-death experience and didn't realize it was a near-death experience until after it happened. My car broke down on the interstate, specifically on I-59 going north from the University of Alabama. So I got out of the car. It was running hot. Of course, freshman of college, no money broken car. It all goes together. I had some antifreeze in the trunk. It was an old Buick. Waited till it cooled down, sitting in the car, in the emergency lane, all the way in the emergency lane. Even when the door was open, it was not crossed out into the interstate. Once the car cooled down, I put some coolant in. I went to the back. I put a coolant container in the trunk, shut the trunk, sat down in the car, and then it was like a scene from a movie where it just changed. Things blacked out. And when I woke up, I saw two bodies laying in the road. There was a fireman and some other emergency personnel prying me out of my car. Couldn't remember my name, and I didn't understand why there were people laying around in the road. And it turns out, when I got back in the car and sat down, there were two cars racing. This was late at night. One of them tried to pass his opponent in the emergency lane and I was there because someone was in the lane obviously that was passing me and I was there parked. The car wasn't even on and he hit me parked in the emergency lane. How bad were you hurt? Not bad. I had a little small scratch on my head and I couldn't remember anything. And I had been out for a while because the emergency people were already there. This was late at night and that was before cell phones. So obviously Someone had to pass by and say, oh my gosh, and call, or someone had to go somewhere and call. And so the firemen were getting me out of the car, and they said, do you know where you live? And I said, no. And I was very confused, because I couldn't figure out why there were people laying around on the ground. I saw another car that was wrecked. And for a few seconds, I thought, maybe I did something. How did I do all this? What have I done now? Exactly. <laughs> and so they, um, they got my license, and that's how they figure out where I live. They took me home. and. My memory came back slowly that same night, but the reason I said it was a, a brush with death getting back to your question is that if I had stalled, let's say I decided to check the water for a second, or I had dropped the container, because literally when I shut the door to my car, that's when everything just blacked out. Mm -hmm. So if I had stalled, or I decided I was going to take something else out of the trunk, or I needed to put something else out of the trunk, or if I hesitated at any moment, I would have been between my car and the car that hit me. So you would have been probably not alive. Yeah. Did that change your life after that? Did you start to rethink things? I don't think it changed my life. I think I've been a spiritual person for a lot of my life. My father was a preacher and I have explored lots of different religions. For me it confirmed that there's something more powerful, something maybe something beyond me that sort of helps me navigate. I was just more grateful. I was kind of thinking, oh thank goodness you said not now, so thank you. Again, what is he thinking, that man who trembles between a rifle and a wall? buried in his time and nonetheless about to be taken from it by a blow that the mother who bore him could never have dreamed of. In one sense, you know, 
like all of us are in sort of in that situation with the rifle representing our mortality and the wall representing the limits that we face, whether they're like biological limits or whether in our circumstances. I mean, I've had anxiety, I've had OCD. Those kinds of um, things make you actually feel that that's really what's happening in the moment. But it's not an actual rifle. It's a metaphorical rifle that's being pointed at you. So I sent you a comic. It's about a cat that's running from a bunch of dogs that are chasing him. The cat, you'd expect the cat to be terrified. And yet the cat is looking um, at a four-leaf clover and says, wow, a four-leaf clover. Now, to me, that's... it's it's um representative of yes his situation is grim and yes those dogs are all going to catch him eventually but nevertheless he is going to retain his sense of wonder his sense of awe his um enjoyment of life in spite of the inevitable so that's related actually also to a zen story called the tiger and the strawberry, or tiger and the strawberry, which I've seen interpreted in two very different ways. I don't know, are you familiar with the story? Yeah, in fact, I uh, I spoke about this on a podcast like five or six episodes ago, but I, I'm very curious to hear what t- version you heard of it. In thinking about this, I had thought about this, this story, but I mean, I, I wasn't very clear on the details, so I looked it up, and so it is about somebody is chased and he runs off a cliff, and the tiger's at the top of the cliff, and meanwhile the guy's hanging onto a vine. And um, at the bottom of the cliff, there's another tiger that's uh, growling up at him. So, meanwhile, there's these two mice that uh, are chewing at the at the uh, vine that's holding him up. And he sees a strawberry, grabs it, and eats it. You know, and he says, "Ah, oh, what a nice sweet strawberry." But, you know, it just so happened that when I looked this story up, I saw that it was interpreted by someone else as to suggest that the strawberry represents a distraction, and what he really should have been doing is looking for a way out of his predicament. That perhaps there was another vine hanging, or some branch hanging that he could have grabbed on and gotten out of that situation. So I think there, there is actually two ways of looking at it. I mean, you could perhaps do both. We're always fighting for life till the last minute and at the same time wanting to appreciate life till the last minute. So I think both those interpretations are valid. Especially in the West or in any fairly safe civilization, we have the luxury of thinking certain things without any danger of getting in trouble for the most part. But the way you talk about this quote that you had these was it some health problems? Did your thought process change or your view on life change from when presumably life was good and okay from that to now you have anxiety and some other problems? Did your belief system change even? They've changed in the sense that, you know, where you feel like you are trying to find more like what's essential as opposed to stuff that is trivial. Yeah. That's the luxury I was talking about. Like when everything is great and there's no fear, we can right. be- we can believe in maybe things that aren't true or are not tested even. 
exactly. Good word. Like you have the luxury of believing in all this kind of stuff. But moreover, it's beyond belief. When you're in such a situation, it's sort of like belief is not that important. It's more critical of what you do because the only thing you have is that space of time. Are you going to use to that space of time to say like, hmm, what do I believe? Do I believe this? Do I believe that? Do I believe this? You know, it's kind of a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of this going on, I think, of like, what should you believe about this religion? Or what should you believe about this doctrine? And what should you believe about that? And they're right and they're wrong. And, but meanwhile, in that situation, if you're just sitting there, um, like, you know, he who hesitates is lost. We have a chance either A, to get out from under the gun, or B, actually do something with that little time that we have. It ceases to be an intellectual exercise. Like when you have beliefs, you require a certain level of trust, a certain level of faith, a certain level of certainty, right? Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, OCD scrupulosity, which I have suffered Scrupulosity is like the religious form of uh, OCD. Part of it is that you have a relationship with uncertainty, like that you can't stand uncertainty. Now, this is very important because, like, you see, like, human beings in general um, supposedly do not like uncertainty. We like things to be, you know, clear, known, because we're just designed that way. We don't want to think that there's something, for example, like a wolf hiding in the bushes. We want to be exactly certain that the area is safe or whatnot. And we want to be safe, feel certain in, in terms of our beliefs also. Mm -hmm. So for example, you want to be certain that your soul is saved or there's a God. You know what I mean? You have all these different levels of uncertainty that you just don't want to deal with. Now, when you're in a, such a situation, like with the rifle, or with the metaphorical rifle, had you, you realize that in life, as far as like ultimates and absolutes, there is no certainty. You know, we're sure that we're born, that we're here, that we die. Those are the ultimate certainties of life. Now, in a metaphysical sense, we can argue forever about, you know, what is the absolute. A tree is known by its roots. If you look at people who think they know the absolute truth, that has a, has different kinds of fruits. On the one hand, it has, you know, like creativity fruits. On the other hand, it has, you know, like we know everything and, and all of you, the rest of you are infidels and you must be exterminated or something like that. You know what I mean? The point is that since you can't really be certain, are you really going to spend that time that you've got with the rifle pointing at you, struggling to be certain, struggling to resolve your doubts before you act. No, that's foolish. You have to put it like, look, this uncertainty is part of life, period. That's the reason why like, all these kinds of theoretical, theological beliefs sort of gave way to sort of like, well, you know, what did Jesus tell us to do? He told us to visit the sick, feed the hungry. These are like, concrete things that we can do in the world. Mm -hmm. This is not speculative. This makes the world a better place and it makes your life better because you are acting as part of a larger body, the body of humanity, rather than just um, little 
physical self, which doesn't make any sense by itself. It has no existence by itself. And the other issue, of course, is if I may say one last thing, yes, is that when you feel the rifle and the and the wall, you're less into abstractions, okay? Because you've got you're there at the wall and the gun, and now. You're, imagine the person who's holding the rifle is saying to you, yeah, your God doesn't exist, okay? Yes, we, don't, we can't prove, but here's the deal. We have no question. If you live as if a God exists, is better than to live as if a God does not. Because, like, for example, if you tell a tree that, you know, there's no such thing as the sun, you know, that it has nothing to grow toward. <laughs> You're trying, striving to grow towards an ultimate ideal, and you believe that that ideal is personified in, in God. So an ideal of love, of, to believe in God is to believe that, that love is something fundamental. We're never going to, may never have the proof, but that's not the point. The point in our life is we know that we want to act. So because, like, Belief is something, again, abstract. Not talk about God as something abstract, but try to emulate what we think of God in the way we act. The interesting thing is, like, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but uh, Richard Rohr. Oh, yeah. He actually has said something that your image of God creates you. We have very conflicting images of God, which can be very problematic like, I know, for example, that, uh, that people with, like, um, anxiety, OCD, have a great deal of problem with images of God as a, as a punitive guy who's going to just, like, throw people to hell. If you feel, like, a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, a sense of love, then you feel the presence of God. But, see, what we're also less comfortable feeling, I think, is that, well, like, if you're experiencing this sense of pain of misery, of lostness. I mean, we have defined that as to be not God, mm -hmm. you know, not of God. But, you know, the, the problem is that if you, if we um, associate certain things as God and certain things are not God, that can be problematic because then you start to think like, oh, well, if you have this really great feeling you're close to God and you otherwise you're like, God, why have you forsaken me, or why don't you exist? You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas, so we have a poor relationship with uncertainty and a poor relationship with suffering. Part of the suffering is, you know, is I forgot the guy's name, but the guy who um, survived the Holocaust, and he said that human beings can stand any suffering, but they can't stand not having meaning. That's the ultimate suffering. Last quote. Every time a generation comes in or goes out, slamming doors, the old poet tightens his belt and tunes up his cornet like a little rooster. They cannot be convinced that in poetry youth is only attained by years. So basically the, the older generation is always disgruntled by the youth, probably jealous too of their youth, their energy. Do, do you ever get envious of youth sometimes? or? Yeah, that's why I dye my hair. <laughs> you know what specifically besides a uh, nice hair color 
Do you envy of youth pe- younger people? Um, you know, just the energy. I, I wish I had, like with the resources I have now and the experiences, I wish I had the same amount of energy. And there's a dichotomy because in one hand, like the world is wide open. You can do whatever you want. It's mm-hmm. easier to travel and, and it's just fun. But the scary part is what am I going to do with my life and my career? That was the worst part about being young is just trying to get established in the struggle, you know, to finish school and to have a job or start a business. It's just uh, sucks a lot of time. Like I missed probably a whole decade worth of movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no idea, like pop culture references. Right. Yeah. But they, I mean, you've probably heard it's a cliche thing to say, but when people are on the deathbed, they don't think about, man, I'm glad I watched all those movies. <laughs> you know, they, right. they usually uh, ruminate on the, the good times of their children or yeah, friends. It's, it's usually uh, they wish they had better relationships. You know, they don't talk about, well, I'm glad I accumulated all this junk. <laughs> but if they spent that same amount of energy and time accumulating relationships, <laughs> I think that would be a life, you know, well do, served. Do you feel like you've accumulated good relationships? Yeah, I think so. Because that's what life is. I mean, you can't do anything alone. And life is people. Mm-hmm. It's just it, you know. You and I think the only reason, like, I'm successful, if you want to consider me successful, would be that I can get along with people. Mm-hmm. And I think your success is in direct relationship to how well you get along with people, mm-hmm. because not to convince them to do anything for you, but you know, this this is a herd and cats moment. But it did strike me. A lot of people they try to achieve their goal. Like through being aggressive and maybe bullying a little bit or being angry at people. Uh, Have you seen that? Yeah, I think that's like an old model. You know, I think it worked because, you know, I look at old family members and that's how they used to do it and that's was acceptable. It's almost, uh, you know, I I don't think you can do that now. Like Gordon Ramsay could not yell at his staff in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and they would stay there. Right. You know, I know it's all TV, but that's the way it used to be. Is that what he does on the TV? Yeah. Oh, I've never seen it. Well, okay. I was talking to a chef who's in his 70s, and the first day on the job, the chef threw a pan at him because the eggs were running. Uh-huh. So, I mean, but that's old school. Oh, I see. Yeah. I think about, too, with young people that are, like, activism and things, politics, they, they t- it seems like they're just constantly yelling and demanding, and it's pretty scary, and, and I don't think... I would want to join their cause because I don't want to have to put up with that, you know, the groupthink and the bullying all the time. Well, I think when you're young, you do have groupthink. And I think this generation is kind of smart where they are, uh, I think they understand it's not all about money. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they're a little bit, they're, in one hand, I think they're pretty wise. On the other hand, I don't know if they work hard enough, you know, but I, th- I think they almost learn from us working too hard. So you think because they grew up with plenty from the, all their parents' hard work, they've learned that, that that isn't everything? Yeah, I think so. I think they probably long for their relationships, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe their parents didn't spend... Or meaning or yeah. purpose. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, because like, it, it seems like this generation wants meaningful jobs. They want to feel appreciated, mm-hmm. you know. They, they want a, a birthday card, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. They, they want stuff... That's meaningful, you know, to them. And I get it.
again. Every time a generation comes in or goes out, slamming doors, the old poet tightens his belt and tunes up his cornet like a little rooster. They cannot be convinced that in poetry, youth is only attained by years. We should set an example for the generation behind us. And, you know, and it should trickle down from the, old, this, from the old man down to the young child, by example. But this is what happened to me. When I became a Christian on that Tuesday night in, in the month of May in, in 1981, Soon thereafter, I wanted to sell my restaurant and I wanted to go to Bible college because my pastor had been to Bible college and he had just graduated from Bible college. And so I said to the Lord, I said, I'd like to sell my restaurant and get out of the business and go to Bible college. I'd really like to learn more about who you are and what the Word says. And this is what I heard him say. Once again, in my intuition, this is the thought that came to my mind, is I'm going to take you through the school of hard knocks. I couldn't give the restaurant away. I couldn't sell it. I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of it. That bad, huh? It was that bad. I was grossing a half a million a year but you know and I had the the accountant had the records of but I nobody wanted to buy it and so what I ended up doing is working it out and then I lost it I lost the business I lost it because I went into the restaurant being a single person and immediately starting to remodel and taking the cash out of the register oh. to pay for it instead of the taxes and not realizing the taxes this is the first time I've been in business mm -hmm. And so in my ignorance, I was paying the carpenters for the remodeling instead of paying the taxes. Well, then this tax just snowballed over a period of 10 years. Mm -hmm. As you know, that they'll multiply because yeah. of fines and all that. So getting back to what we were talking about, what he was saying to me, the experience of time, as you get older, you're going to find out that things are different. And so the experience... And I'll give you an example, the word of, in Psalms 119, again, it says, I will praise you with steadfastness of heart once I've experienced your righteous judgments. In other words, once I've gone through the curriculum of life, being young and, and I made some stupid mistakes when I, was, when I was in my 30s and 40s. But like I said, after I was 50, and then the more that I experienced with God in life, the more that I am slow to respond. He said to me a long time ago, he said, patience is something that you need to work on. And so, of course, I kind of ignored it. But one time, he's, all I heard was in my mind, I heard, meet, 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 meet. And I'm thinking, meet, meet, that's the roadrunner. Uh -huh. And so what he was telling me, he said, your brain races. You're always racing in your mind. You need to slow down and enjoy time and what I'm saying and doing in your life. But it's all about waiting. When I say all about waiting, don't be in a hurry because every time you're in a hurry, many times that you're in a hurry, you're gonna mess up. In decision making, that question about youth, the generations, I'd like to tell the young people, all the potential that I see them on, in the bus, I'd like to say, you have such great potential. If you'd only know that experience, time, will teach you a lot of things. So I would say to the poet, that don't shut the door, but be an example. You want to sometimes shut the door in the next generation, but be an example and because they're watching you. So you were saying when you were younger, you were an idiot, but you learned, <laughs> and because people didn't shut the door on you, yeah. is that more or less? What you're well, saying? yeah, because my father didn't. My father that dwells inside of me. God did not shut the door on me. It says in Proverbs, if if a man falls down seven times, mm -hmm. get back up. The man that gets back up is successful. 
If you don't take risks in life, you're not going to go anywhere. You're never going to be successful or have prosperity. But when you take a risk and you get back up and you keep on going, each time that, that experience is a stepping stone to something greater. And we know that that's many times what people say. And it truly, it's, it's the truth. It really is. Again, every time a generation comes in or goes out, slamming doors, the old poet tightens his belt and tunes up his cornet like a little rooster. They cannot be convinced that in poetry, youth is only attained by years. As a teacher of middle school students, I don't think I've heard a poem that sounds resonated that much. (laughs) (laughs) Just right off the bat, because what he's basically saying is I'm pretty much younger than all of you. Even though chronologically you're smaller um, I've achieved youth, and you haven't, to his students. I think it was Tony Campolo. He had this great quote that that makes me think about. He was talking to youth. He was saying, no matter what they tell you, you're only as old as your dreams, and I'm younger than all of you. As a teacher, whenever I'm up here, uh, like, going over, I, I love going over, like, different stories and different stuff from, like, the stuff they like to read, but also to kind of show, like, where all that comes from like their Hunger Games and their Divergence and uh, all of the movies they're watching and kind of show how that relates to kind of the bigger picture. These books may be more recent, but these great stories are a lot younger than these books. Well, we're doing the hero's journey. We always do the the hero's journey. And you can find that anywhere. I mean, with all the superhero movies and the quintessential hero's journey thing that you show the kids is like the very, very first Star Wars movie. And I remember watching it. That's one of my first memories. I remember turning four years old and just realizing I was four. And then my next memory is watching Star Wars in a theater. And it was so fast paced. And it was just like something I, like I'd never seen before. And it was just took me to another world and everything. And now you play it. And I think it's still a great, great film. But to this, this audience now, that's just so, the attention span is so limited and just everything has to be way more fast-paced and more cgi and more special effects and everything and they, they're like falling asleep and they're like what is this, are we gonna watch this whole thing and at that point i feel like just standing on a desk and playing the coronet <laughs> right and just saying like i'm younger than all of you i can't believe you can, you're not getting the greatness of this you know think about with the first star wars just that scene where luke and ben are in his house it's not very long, but it does feel like you're hanging out. And he says so much in what little he does say. I mean, it's kind of epic what he says. It is very streamlined, but yeah, for this audience, it's just like, it just for them, it's just dragging. I remember when I showed it to uh, a youth group once, they were just uh, laughing afterwards and going, pew, 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 pew. <laughs> yeah, and of course. I was like, are you making fun of the sound? Those sounds are amazing. Yeah. Again, every time a generation comes in or goes out, slamming doors, the old poet tightens his belt and tunes up his cornet like a little rooster. They cannot be convinced that in poetry, youth is only attained by years. I think the first part, you know, about the generation coming or going and slamming doors, I think that that, just that little section stood out to me because so often... It's like my dad once said, you know, when I was younger, I thought my father was stupid. And then when I got older, I thought, how did he get smart so fast? That's a Mark Twain. Sorry, my dad was not Mark Twain. (laughs) Just remember, never put off 
until tomorrow what you can do day after tomorrow, according to Mark Twain. I think every generation feels like, you know, they're the most important generation and that the other generation is either the one before them is old and they're just not effective and they're jaded and... And I think to a degree, maybe there's some truth in that because, you know, it's hard to get through this life without kind of losing some of your sparkle and some of your excitement about it to a degree. I mean, we all know older people that are, you know, on fire and it took them a while. Like in my own life, I find that as I get older, I kind of tend to be less arrogant about knowing all the answers and realizing that probably that's what happened to everyone before me is it's not that they're lackadaisical or that they just don't care they just know that we can discuss how many angels are dancing on the head of a pen all day but that won't alleviate human suffering you know i mean there's a lot of abstract things we can i mean you know debatably what we're doing right now is an abstract discussion but if someone came up and they needed help we're going to put this stuff down and help them you know and i think there's a certain need for younger generations to feel like they're better because they have nothing else to stand on you know as soon as they start trying to define themselves in about their 20s they need something that they can latch onto as their identity i think that's why in college you famously see all these groups of like people that are very fundamentalist about whatever you know whether they're atheists christian philosophers you know whatever they they You've probably seen this with philosophy where someone will get really into Nietzsche and, and they'll just be like, oh, well, everyone else is wrong. And it's like, well, okay, it's kind of hard to really argue that point. I mean, how do you mean everyone else is wrong? What do you even mean by wrong? I mean, let's not even start. Let's start there. But I think there's a need to feel like you're defining yourself and they latch on to something. And as soon as they see anything that they can criticize in the older generation, then that helps them kind of strengthen their supposed position and older generations do the thing like i've done this i mean i'm 45 and i'm not that old but i've started seeing myself i've had to fight this tendency to look at younger people and judge them and be like oh they're this way or that way because every older generation does that it's like looking at an egg and saying well that's not much of a chicken you know, I mean, because what what they're doing is it's like you're looking at that going, oh, well, these kids, they don't know anything. Well, of course not. You don't either. I mean, compared to someone who's like 20 years older than you. It's funny. The older generation gets kind of lumped in and they always feel like oh, kids these days. But then they kind of forget what their parents said about them. So anyway, all that to say that, yeah, I think every generation kind of prides themselves on something because it's a group think kind of community thing again that I think we evolved as communal animals and we want to fit in a group. And that's where all the problems come from, you know, because we are in a group. It's just a very large one of humanity, but we can't get our stupid monkey heads around it. So, so I think what he's saying here is you know, the poet who has some wisdom, you know, he's older and he's kind of written for a while and he's kind of seen the world. I mean, poetry I love because to me the function of it as art is to take your experience of something, you know, flower, tree, something that happened, you know, in your life, and to broaden the experience to make it a universal experience so that everyone can experience it with you through the poem. And I think the brilliance of that is that the only holy thing in this life, in my opinion, whether you're religious or not, I think it still applies, is experience. You cannot question another person's experience because 
there but for the grace of God go I. You know, it's like, had I experienced their life, I might be exactly the same because debatably all we are is an accumulation of memories of our experiences. You know, there was a tragedy that occurred um, in my family and, you know, up until then, admittedly I was drifting, you know, away from like mainstream Christianity, but I was kind of like, you know, I still had some kind of belief in this loving God and all that. And so when that happened, though, it dawned on me that the, uh, and I still believe to this day, it wasn't an immediate thought, so, but I, eventually I've kind of come to the conclusion that the only theological question that matters is how do we address suffering? Now, some will disagree with me, and you know, there's various theodicies and things that, you know, they say, well, that's actually not even that big a question because, we, you know, it's like, here's this, this, and this reason. What I find interesting, though, and I've seen these discussions online where people have debates about why suffering is allowed and why and how you can how can there be a God and blah blah blah. You know, it gets to a point where you're looking at the comments section, and it always occurs to me at some point every time that they're talking in abstracts. It's all about like a logic argument, and there's no humanity in it. And the problem with that is suffering is an inherently subjective human experience and you can't use words and logic when someone it goes back to what we were saying in another question like if you're having an emotional response that's another whole part of your thinking it'd be like saying oh someone died okay well you know they're dead so let's move on (laughs) it's kind of like the joke you know like you know I'm going to turn my phone off and take a nap because if somebody dies while I'm asleep they'll still be dead when I wake up that's ridiculous you know I think that's the mistake cognitive behavioral therapy makes is trying to turn emotions into a rational argument because it's not even biologically accurate to me suffering is the thing that does polarize people and actually makes people have to develop some kind of response because it's just by definition it's just overwhelming if if you never have a way to explain the suffering in your life it just will cripple you. A lot of people, it does, you know, like bitter old men, you know, they're just convinced the world is all terrible. Here's what I was going to say about experience, though. It's like consciousness. It's an inherently subjective thing. You will never be able to objectively measure it, by definition, because it's like you're going to determine how square a circle is. It doesn't even logically connect, you know. Let's say, like I haven't met your wife personally, she seems like a nice person. And you tell me about her, and I say, she sounds great. Why do you love her? So you make a list of all the things about her that you're like, these are the good points. This is why I love her. And then I, I'm given the list, and I study it really carefully. So in my head, I have this very clear image of what this woman is like. And then we meet at a party, and she's there. And I introduce myself, and I interact with her, and I validate that everything you've said is true. Like, every detail, everything about her you love, I'm like, I completely see that. That is rationally accurate. I will still not love her like you love her. And that, my friend, is what the difference is between experience and facts. Because when it comes down to it, I cannot, as an agnostic, look at a person who is a believer in any religion or any God who says, well, I had an experience of God, and that's why I'm a Christian. I can't look at that and say, well, that's absurd and that's stupid. Because what's truly absurd is for me to say, because I have not experienced it, you can't have experienced it. 
and that's subjectivity and that goes back to kind of what this is all about and that's where I think tolerance can come from is the acceptance that I'm not you and for some reason we all forget that daily and that you're not me so why are we arguing like you know if someone thinks immigrants are taking my job so we need to get rid of them whether you agree with that or not there is a rationale and a logical structure behind what they're saying based on their experience or what they think is their, you know, the situation. That's not evil. There's no belligerence. It's just a pure logic argument at that point. Now they've forgotten the humanity of another person, which goes right back to what we're saying in the first place, that the experience of an immigrant is not that they're coming to take your job. They just want to eat. And I think if the person who's, I'm just picking this out of a hat, but like the person who's so down on like illegal immigrants taking their work, if they sat down at a table with that immigrant and talked to them for about 10 minutes, they'd realize, oh, we both want the same damn thing. We both want our families and to live. We both want, you know, to be able to put our kids through college or just feed our kids. And it's a very laudable thing. I think most people are rational people and are pretty good at compromise they just don't get a chance to because they don't get a chance to really see what the other person's experience is and so with your wife saying that because I've not experienced God that means he doesn't exist and that you're wrong it's like me saying well you don't really love your wife because I don't love her like you do my experience of her is not the same and that's just stupid and arrogant and the source of the quotes? Well, all of these bits of poetry are by Cuban-born poet Roberto Padilla. Initially a supporter of Fidel Castro's revolution, he eventually became an open critic for which he was imprisoned in 1971. Padilla agreed to deliver a public self-criticism of his anti-revolutionary attitudes and was released but kept on house arrest. The poet's treatment by the Cuban communist government was denounced by prominent intellectuals outside of Cuba, such as... Susan Sontag and John Paul Sartre, and he was finally allowed to go into exile in 1980. Padilla settled in America, was quoted by President Ronald Reagan in a 1983 speech, and passed away in 2000 while teaching at Auburn University in Alabama. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.